This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Republicans in Texas were meant to be focusing on the primaries this week, but a deadly shooting which saw at least 19 schoolchildren killed changed all that. Unfortunately, these acts of violence have become woven into the fabric of American politics and our elections. And while tonight's voting seems small right now, it matters. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. It was on Tuesday that we started getting reports from Texas that an 18-year-old suspect had first shot his own grandmother before driving and crashing near an elementary school where he entered and started shooting. Texas officials report 19 children and at least two adults killed. The 18-year-old gunman, a high school student, fatally wounded by police. Authorities say he carried two firearms, including a rifle, and wore body armor. Jonathan, it was a gut punch, actually, and it was just one of these moments where you think, do we go through this again? Dan Bowles is chief correspondent at the Washington Post, having worked there for more than four decades. He was watching the many primary races taking place across the country earlier this week when he first heard about the shooting. But I think this one, because of who the victims were, I mean, whenever you're dealing with children in a school, it just compounds the agony and, and frankly, the outrage that, that we continue to you know, not allow this to happen, but we continue to live with it and and not able to find ways to deal with it more effectively. So it's just a a terrible emotional wrenching moment when you hear about this one. And by your estimate, how long would you say it took before politicians started making politics out of this? Everybody wants to avoid that in the immediate hours after a shooting like this. I think everybody has the same kind of human reactions and, and kind of non-professional reactions, which is, which is empathy for the families who have lost these kids and, and, and a sense of grief and uh, sharing in that and, and wanting to be part of the process of, of helping to heal. But because this continues to happen, inevitably people go to their corners and the advocates of gun control who have been unsuccessful for so many years in toughening the gun laws want some kind of action. They want to see some kind of action. The public as a whole is supportive of at least modest changes, and yet we have a, a constituency in this country which, which is part of a, a heritage in America of a, of a, you know, a gun culture uh, and a resistance to anything that looks like it's, it's going to restrict people's right under the Second Amendment to have weapons and, and to purchase them and use them legally. And that group has been particularly effective politically in preventing uh, any action on gun laws. And they 
point to other factors that need to be dealt with legitimately, mental health issues, and but it doesn't take long for the two sides to uh, have redrawn their positions in, in a way that suggests that we're likely to have no action once again. I mean, there is, I think what you're saying chimes with this terribly bleak sense that there is a kind of almost ritualistic dance that happens every time, which is Democrats call for gun safety measures, Republicans say they're sending thoughts and prayers and that you mustn't politicise this terrible tragedy. Each camp go to their corners. Is there any reason at all that could lead you to think that won't happen this time and that instead something different will happen this time? I don't see that. Perhaps there will be some kind of thaw on the part of those people and those politicians who have been resistant to doing anything on the gun law front. But um, all of the early indications are that the people who have long opposed uh, any changes in gun laws continue to say there are there are other factors that have to be dealt with. There was just a press conference in, in uh, Uvalde, Texas, on Wednesday afternoon, and Governor Abbott, uh, the governor of Texas, talked at some length about the issues of mental health and more resources going into that. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period. We, have, we as a government need to find a way to target that mental health challenge. And, and to some extent, more resources going into, you know, if you will, protecting schools and, and uh, you know, hardening schools or offering more protection. Um, at no point in the time I was listening to it was there any mention on his part of doing anything about guns. And in fact, there was a moment in which Beto O'Rourke, uh, the f- former congressperson and, and presidential candidate who is now running against Abbott for governor, interrupted the press conference. Is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, you need to get his ass out of here. This isn't is a place to talk to this over. This is totally predictable. When you Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you're out of line. Uh, we couldn't hear everything he was saying, but it was pretty clear he was talking about doing something on the gun front, and he was he was escorted out, and and that's where it was left. And I thought it it, it kind of symbolized where this debate probably is heading, which is to say, people talking past one another. There's been lots of attention on. One politician in particular, perhaps predictably, given that it is Texas, and that is Texas Senator Ted Cruz. He tweeted very soon after word of the shooting emerged, saying that he and his wife were fervently uplifting in prayer uh, the town of Uvalde and those who were bereaved. And others came back saying, look, save your thoughts and prayers. Uh, and many of them pointing out that according to at least one measure, uh, Ted Cruz is right out in front among those politicians who have received funds from gun rights lobby groups, uh, the NRA and others uh, included. When we look at politicians like Cruz, is their opinion when they say that, look, the problem isn't guns, it's rather people with mental illness or the right solution is to harden schools, train teachers to carry firearms and so on, rather than just the easy availability of guns. Do they take that position because they believe it or because gun rights groups are paying them big money? 
Well, I, I, I don't think there's the absence of a connection on that front, but, but in a sense, they are, they are all allied. Uh, well, one of the interesting things, Jonathan, is that uh, after the shootings in, at Sandy Hook Elementary School... The worst grade school shooting in U.S. history, at least 27 dead, 20 children, 7 adults, including the principal. And uh, there was an effort on that that President Obama pushed, and that, that Joe Biden, who was then the vice president, took the lead on in trying to enact some new gun safety legislation. Ultimately, they were unsuccessful. It died in the Senate, and the, one of the reasons was the power of the National Rifle Association. In, in the subsequent ten years, the NRA has become a somewhat diminished force politically. It's had a long series of scandals that that have weakened the institution, and yet, uh, in many ways, the the opponents of of gun legislation are stronger than ever. It's almost more uh, a citizen organization today, uh, the, the culture of part of the conservative movement. And Ted Cruz and others who have long, you know, gotten money from the NRA uh, represent that. They represent that constituency as well. I mean, Cruz is speaking for a portion uh, of the conservative base and the conservative part of the Republican Party. Whether the money is an, an additional incentive for him to take the positions he has, only Ted Cruz can say. But I think that it's all of a piece in the way people come at these issues and, and the degree to which they are anticipating how the other side will act and, in a sense, aggressively move in the other direction. Look, I agree with you. We need to do something. But the something is not the... the empty political posturing uh, of people like, you know, Beto O'Rourke, who shows up and tries to turn it into a, a political event instead of... So it is, it's partly uh, electoral politics. It's not just this crude business of sort of money changing hands. It's interesting you mentioned the NRA in the context of Texas, because they are due to host their annual meeting this weekend in Houston, Texas. And as you and I speak, no, nobody's cancelled that gathering. I mean, that I think there will be some people who think that's pretty brazen to go ahead with that. Former President Donald Trump is due to be one of the speakers there. It's uh, noticeable that guns are banned for anyone attending uh, that speech. But, you know, Ted Cruz will be there. The governor, Greg Abbott, will be there. I mean, what does it say about the politics of this issue that that even after something like this has happened, those politicians feel they need to still be there and and the NRA is not in a way even embarrassed to be still advocating the the rights of, yes, gun owners, but even for assault weapons and others to be pretty unrestrictedly available to whoever wants them? Well, it, 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 it really speaks so much to the kind of the, the culture of guns in, in the United States. I mean, you know, there are more guns in the United States than there are people. This has increased over the years. A gathering like the NRA will be a restatement of the reasons in which the advocates of, you know, of opposing gun legislation continue to hold those positions. The, one of the former leaders of the NRA always has said, as have many others, you know, the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. The people who believe strongly that the Second Amendment should be unrestricted in its application will restate those positions, you know, and will have anger aimed at the NRA and, and at those politicians. We, we should clarify for people on the outside. I think people perhaps in this country, in Britain, would assume that when you're talking about the other side, Democrats and people who are advocates of gun control or gun safety, that they're thinking of something like the uh, action that was taken here in Britain after the 
terrible Dunblane massacre in the in 1996. A crazed gunman bursts into a primary school class in Dunblane and kills or wounds almost every child and the one teacher present. Guns were basically banned. Uh, just clarify for us what the advocates of gun uh, safety or gun control measures are advocating, because it's much, much less than that. Oh, oh yes. It's, I mean, it's, it's very, very modest. I mean, there's, there's very few politicians who are advocating even something as serious as banning assault weapons, which were banned for a decade after a, a law was passed in 1994. It expired after 10 years and was never uh, reinstated. Nobody is talking about that today. People are talking more about uh, expanding background checks for all sales and purchases of guns uh, and things like no unauthorized gun sales. But Jonathan, there are many people who hear that and say, well, that's the first step uh, by the left to confiscate all our weapons. I don't think anybody thinks that additional gun legislation is going to eliminate the shootings in this country. I mean, it, you know, any more than, you know, you can, you know, wish away evil. The advocates are simply saying we, we need to at least begin to think about this and address it and let's come together and try to do something. And yet there is no political will on the part of, you know, frankly, the Republican politicians to really take that step. A few months ago, in response to too many tragedies, including the shootings of a United States Congresswoman, Gabby Gifford, who's here today, and the murder of 20 innocent school children and their teachers. This country took up the cause of protecting more of our people from gun violence. And the legislation that President Obama uh, proposed and it became a, a piece of, of bipartisan legislation, there was a Republican senator and a Democratic senator who, who came together to try to put it together. A few minutes ago, a minority in the United States Senate decided it wasn't worth it. They blocked common sense gun reforms, even while these families looked on from the Senate gallery. Many of the provisions then enjoyed the support of 70 or 80 percent of the public, which means, you know, a considerable share of, of rank and file Republicans. Uh, said they were in favor of those kinds of things. But it's the power of the gun lobby, and as you suggest, the money that they have put into campaigns that, that carried the day in that case and that continues to, to be the, the, the dictator of what happens legislatively. And just on the Democrats, before we move on, I mean, the modesty of their ambition is emphasized in a way by the call from the governor of New York, who, who, who said that you know, what she wants to do is just increase the gun purchasing age from 18 to 21, noting that both the shooters in the Uvalde case and the alleged shooter in the Buffalo case were just 18 years old. So we're talking about small measures, and yet they're not really seem exuding any kind of confidence they could get anything done. I, I was struck by reading that Chuck Schumer, the uh, leader of the Democrats in the Senate, is has signaled he won't bring a, a bill forward. And you saw in that very powerful speech that Chris... Murphy of Connecticut gave, uh, you know, he represents the area where the Sandy Hook tragedy happened uh, nearly a decade ago. He gave a tremendously powerful speech. Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job, of putting yourself in a position of authority? If your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing. What are we doing? 
Why are you here? There's a kind of weariness in his voice, Dan, as if he and other people like him acknowledge this is a problem that is basically just not going to get, not solved, but even addressed. I, I think that's the, you know, if you will, that's the tragedy of this, that it can't even be addressed. And, and Senator Murphy, both the words he has spoken and the, and the emotion and the body language uh, is all of a person who has battled on this front for many, many years and realizes that the prospects for anything happening. You know, we heard the President of the United States on Tuesday night, who was just back from Asia, you could see the full range of emotions uh, in him that so much of the country was feeling. I had hoped when I became President I would not have to do this again. From a kind of a despair and grief and sadness to anger and fury and frustration. And how many scores of little children who witness what happened see their friends die as if they're on a battlefield, for God's sake? Uh, all in the matter of a, of a very few minutes. And I think Senator Murphy exudes that just as much or more. And I think that it, you know, it symbolizes the frozen nature of this debate. Part of that frustration is something built into the system which is about the nature of the Senate. And I think we've talked about this on this podcast before. It's about where power lies and about winning seats in the states in the Senate, if you're ever going to change anything, uh, which disproportionately tilt towards those conservative gun-owning states. There is a chance for there to be a change in the form of midterm elections, which come up uh, in November this year, we talked about on this podcast the possibility that abortion rights were going to be a big issue, particularly for women voters in 2022, because of this apparently imminent decision from the Supreme Court to overturn abortion rights. Do you think gun rights and gun safety could be a similarly mobilising issue when people realise it comes down to who sits in the House, who sits in the Senate when it comes to doing something about guns? Will it be an issue in November? My guess at this point is that it will not be uh, one of the top tier issues in the elections in November. We know from everything we've seen, including since the Justice Alito draft opinion was leaked, uh, that inflation continues to be the dominant issue, that disappointment in uh, President Biden's tenure continues to be an important issue, that his approval ratings are in a very, you know, uncomfortable danger zone in the, in the low to mid 40s or more likely the low 40s, and that all midterm elections in the first term of a new president end up as a referendum on the incumbent and the incumbent's party. So all of that leads me to think that those are the forces that are likely to be most important in the way voters make their decisions and, frankly, who comes out to vote. So the question then is, will, will this tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, reverberate long enough uh, to remain in the forefront of people's minds? And will people think that any modest change in the leadership of the Senate or the, or the balance of power in the Senate, will it lead to anything different than we have seen before. And I think that on that score, I think people will be uh, somewhat skeptical. So there, there are a lot of ifs about that. Politics watchers this week did think that they would be talking about those midterm elections and specifically the primary contests that have been happening 
week by week and and and, and did happen this week in Texas and in Georgia and elsewhere that was meant to be the focus of political attention let's just d- d- turn our attention to to those because they did go ahead uh, even as this was happening the big story uh, in in Texas, but particularly in Georgia, has been one that's run through a whole lot of these Republican contests, which is essentially how much juice does Donald Trump still have? Does the, does the people he favour and endorse win these races, or can uh, Republicans win in defiance of the you know stamp of approval from Donald Trump? What what did we learn this week on that score in the primary races that have happened uh, in the last couple of days? At a minimum, we learned that former President Trump had a very bad night in Georgia on Tuesday night. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has won the Republican nomination for another term. He quite handily cleared the 50 percent threshold to avoid a runoff with challenger David Perdue. He had endorsed uh, former Senator David Perdue, who was challenging the incumbent governor, Brian Kemp in Georgia. Kemp, of course, had certified the election that Donald Trump claimed had been stolen in Georgia. David Perdue ran his entire campaign on the idea that the that the election had been stolen, and he got crushed in that election. But a second race, in, in many ways, was just as important, and that was the runoff election, uh, the primary election for Secretary of State. Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, who refused to find extra votes for Trump, winning in his closely watched battle against Jody Heiss, who still contends Georgia's presidential election was a fraud. Brad Raffensperger, he stood up to Donald Trump when Donald Trump called him uh, in early January 2021 and and asked him to, quote unquote, find 11,000 votes, which would have given him the victory. And Raffensperger had consistently assured people that the election had been fairly run and and accurately counted. Uh, And so in Georgia, the Republican voters basically rejected Donald Trump's claim that this was a stolen election and and in one way or another signaled that they want to move on from that. Now, the bigger question is, what does that tell us about Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party? Right. I I think that at this point, you have to say uh, it is not as strong uh, as Donald Trump would like to suggest, and as, as, as many people, including myself, uh, have been writing. But there have been signs for some time that rank-and-file Republicans are easing in their tight hold and support for Donald Trump. That's significant. That's very significant. If we broaden out beyond just this week's results, it says, there's a similar story, I suppose, to be told, because although the Trump endorsee, J.D. Vance, did win the nomination for the Senate in Ohio, a big Trump guy, Madison Cawthorn, lost in North Carolina. Doug Mastriano, big again, so so Trumpy, he literally went to the January the sixth Stop the Steal uh, event uh, on Capitol Hill. He won the nomination to be governor uh, of Pennsylvania. But then, you know, Trump favorites lost big time in Nebraska and Idaho. It's this kind of mixed picture. It's led some people to think, yeah, Trump is lo- is his personal hold is perhaps loosening, but Trumpism is still big. You still have to be a kind of MAGA person to win, that there's no surge of sort of moderates among Republicans, but no longer necessarily being associated with Trump himself. I think that's exactly right. I think that the that the that the future of the party, at least in the in the immediate <clears throat> months and, and probably the immediate years, uh, is a party that looks uh, and sounds more like Donald Trump than than the old Republican Party of you know of the Bush years, and many of the people who might be trying to separate themselves 
from Trump himself and, and who are not buying into the big lie about what happened in, in 2020, nonetheless will run as advocates of stronger election integrity laws, the kind of message that, that Trump has pushed, but they will not necessarily be Trumpian. And a lot of voters may say, that's the kind of person I want. I just don't want it to be Donald Trump. Dan, we always ask our guests on this podcast a what else question, something a bit different, still with primaries, but Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who people will remember as the press secretary for Donald Trump, she won her primary to run for the same job that her dad did, to be governor of Arkansas. So what do we think? Is there a new dynasty? American politics likes its dynasties with the Kennedys, the Bushes, the Clintons. Is a new dynasty, the Huckabees, now part of the American landscape? Well, um, she's certainly going to be the new governor of Arkansas. There's no, there's no likelihood that a Democrat is going to be elected governor of Arkansas. So the, <clears throat> by winning her primary, she's pretty much a shoe-in. She will follow both in the footsteps of her father and of President Trump. But she will, you know, as all politicians try to do, say, I'm my own person and I will, you know, I will govern in my own way. But, but it is interesting that, that, that her, after her father had served as governor and then, then later ran for president, unsuccessfully, that she would then step up. And Jonathan, it, it's interesting that on the day that perhaps a new dynasty uh, named Huckabee was christened in, in America, the Bush dynasty seems to have come to an end as uh, George P. Bush, who is the son of Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida and, and the grandson of George H.W. Bush and the nephew of George W. Bush, lost his runoff election to become the nominee for Texas Attorney General. It was not a surprise by any means, but it was an indication that the name Bush is no longer uh, helpful in Texas politics if you are a Republican. If anything, it is a burden, and I think that that, we saw that play out. And so you have Huckabee's rising and, and Bush's in decline. Dan Balls, Chief Correspondent for The Washington Post, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And that is all from us for this week on Monday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus. Nosheen Iqbal will do a deep dive into America's gun laws, so do listen out for that. Next week, my terrific colleague Joni Greaves steps in and she'll be speaking to Susan Glasser of The New Yorker, a former Moscow bureau chief for The Washington Post. She recently found herself on a list of names banned from entering Russia. She and Joni will discuss the latest from Ukraine and what the Biden administration and the US Congress have been doing to fight back against Vladimir Putin. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtehaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Hello. Have you listened to The Guardian's weekend podcast yet? Every Saturday, we pick some of the best features from The Guardian and Observer so you can catch up on the reads you've missed without having to stop what you're doing. Listen to celebrity interviews, lifestyle features and opinions from our most popular columnists, including Marina Hyde and John Crace. 
Just search for Weekend on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.